0: Welcome to PX18 today. My name is Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. For details on our past and future podcast, please visit our website at www.planningexchange.org. As always, I'd like to give a special shout out to our wonderful sponsor, Maddox, who are the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. When you need a compelling advocate for VCAT, planning panels, advisory committees and higher courts on appeals, Maddox has got you covered. Please refer to their website at www.maddox.com.au for further details. Today we're talking with Brian Haratsis from Macroplan, who is an economist and economic forecasting extraordinaire. Hello, Brian.
1: Hello, Jessie, you're well?
0: Good, thank you. Can you just give us a quick introduction um, of your background and experience?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh Essendon supporter.
0: Ah, great. Played
1: two hundred games for North Old Boys. <laughs> Um, I suppose most relevantly studied at Melbourne Uni over to London School of Economics, worked in the States, worked in the UK, came back and started MacroPlan 30 years ago. We've got over a hundred staff here and myself, um, I'm a forecaster and I specialize in major project work around Australia.
0: And you've just released a book.
1: Yes, it's the third in the series. Um, it's called Destructive Cities. So, uh, it's, it's the realisation that I've had that there are major problems with, with uh, continuing in current practice.
2: Um, Brian, or
1: I might call you Harry,
2: what are the five big emerging issues for cities?
1: Well, I think the, the, the first and biggest is, uh, is jobs. Um, the future of cities is really all about creating jobs. Historically, we've focused on uh, planning cities around residential estates on urban fringes, so I think we're on the wrong track. The second big one is congestion, in particular traffic congestion, which is already a major issue. Uh, Housing affordability is clearly uh, a critical issue and and something which isn't being uh, addressed at all. Uh, I think one emerging issue that really hasn't been picked up in planning, and it was big in the 70s, but it's it's equity. In other words, there are incredibly inequitable outcomes occurring uh, as as a result of the unintended consequence of planning at the moment. And the fifth and the and the biggest one is um, our lack of understanding that the future is not going to be like the past. Well, they're hard to grapple. That's that's a hard thing, isn't it? Because we always look in the rearview
2: mirror and expect that is what the future is going to be like.
1: Well, we do. Um, interestingly, I think post-war, um, other than uh, a big cycle with electrification, and I guess we had a big cycle where. Uh, motor vehicles took over from public transport. You know, we've seen an emergence, I guess, or or, or a continuance of what's known as the Australian settlement model. In other words, we build garden cities, so it's quite a continuity. But what we're now seeing is globalisation and technology beginning to take over.
2: Uh, Harry, how do we measure how successful cities are and within cities, areas within cities? How How do you know that something's working, Or indicators not or suboptimal how do you know?
1: Well we don't know and it's a critical issue uh, that we need to confront. Um, There are lots of variables we all know that you know that Melbourne's the most livable city in the world but I could show you three or four other indices that I I look at and the monocle indice for example shows Melbourne's dropped four or five places uh, in the last few years and primarily because of traffic congestion. Mm. What we should do is use what I call a number of flow variables and so if people have heard of the HILDA, which is the housing and income flow uh, analysis that's undertaken by Melbourne University, we could use crowdsourcing. Uh, we need to think more laterally about how the future might work. But you know what? There's some more obvious stuff we could do. A good example, no one ever trundles out to the urban fringe and asks the question, is that working?
0: Why aren't we doing any research, though? It seems like it's a fairly obvious um area that we need to delve a little bit more into I mean there seems to be very little done in um, city planning and it's more like folklore being passed down.
1: Um, Yeah it is folklore I think things went off the rails in the mid to late 70s when a lot of academia really got into Marxist analysis and quite left-wing theories and so there became an enormous disconnect between research that was undertaken at universities and practice in the field and what's happened is Practice in the field is is informing itself by by practicing. Mm. Um, it is fair to say around the world that up until maybe ten or fifteen years ago, there was not a lot of world based research which was new, mm. but there is now.
0: Yeah, the, I think as well, we we seem to always refer to international research as opposed to looking at our own research happening, you know, at Melbourne Uni and RMIT and some of the some of the more local areas. Do you agree?
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, and and I wouldn't just single out those two universities. I think if we looked at Sydney and if I looked at some of the work Mm. in Queensland and even West Australia, we're not seeing um, research that is informing a debate in in relation to urban planning.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Harry, so many other things have
2: changed in terms of societal needs, housing issues in the last 30 years or so, and particularly with all the new technologies coming on board and all the disruptive economic issues why has planning do you think sort of stayed relative you know, with a bit of inertia with with theory for example and how cities work
1: there's a couple of interesting reasons it's a very good question because i think you know re- referring back to the educational frameworks but it's more than that the regulatory frameworks took over in the mid 80s and You know, we worked our way into, for example, in Victoria, into the VPPs where, you know, we went from 85-page planning scheme ordinance to 850 pages. But we also saw the introduction of the legal fraternity. Now, the legal fraternity has no interest in reforming uh, a legal legal system as it runs at the moment. And what's happened is the system has only interest in maintaining the system itself.
2: Well, that's a bit sad, I mean...
1: It's well, sad for the people we serve, yeah? Well, it's very sad. Um, I, I can go back to um, the inspiration we looked to on the Ministerial Advisory Committee for Plan Melbourne. We were looking for inspiration, we were looking for research, we were looking to see where the ideas were and by and large, um, a lot of the inspiration came from the committee itself. There wasn't a lot out there and, we, and if we looked at submissions, there was, there was you know, a few hundred submissions but there, were, there was um, precious little um, inspiration in any of those mm-hmm. submissions either.
2: Is that because there's a consensus of how cities should develop and um, if there is that consensus, should we treat it with suspicion and uh, remain open to the idea that there may be more than one explanation, one model?
1: I'd call it a dangerous consensus because if you look at the, at this consensus, um, what you can see are enormous number of unintended consequences. How is it that a place with... with uh, Australia, not just referring to Melbourne. How can we have the highest hu- or one of the highest housing prices in the world? Mm. It tells you that there is systemic failure. H- how can we put ourselves in a situation where uh, annual traffic congestion will will cost fifty three and a half billion dollars a year? That's 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 infrastructure Australia uh, every year twenty seven plus twenty seven billion dollars a year in road accidents. So we've sort of stuck to the city beautiful. Height limits and setbacks and and, and and planting, and that's not that's not taking the community where it needs to get to.
2: Mm. Yeah. Uh, Harry, some people listening to this might just think this is a, a call for more deregulation, but it's it's a bit more subtle what you're suggesting
1: than that. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I've sort of coined the idea of re-regulation, uh, not just deregulation. There is a place for some deregulation, I, but. Reregulation, for example, would include uh, developing the concepts around the national economic clusters which are in Plan Melbourne. So, in other words, you won't, ab- you won't be able to develop that concept unless there is a new form of regulation which enables that to occur. So, we need that kind of re regulation. Um, I think also, if you looked at um, emerging uh, job intensive areas, there needs to be re regulation. A good example of that would be health and hospitals. And how is it that we can't get new car parks and car parking close to acute hospitals? That's my view of that is that, that would, there needs to be a, a brand new planning approach to that. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we don't have a spatial approach to tourism? We, we there would need to be regulatory frameworks around that. As opposed to that, we have um, crazy regulations like, for example, you need a planning permit to put a single story dwelling in your backyard. I mean that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. We make it. St- you know luckily in victoria we've at least had the so called LD amendments and there's some potential to to create competition in supermarkets or supermarket provision but in other states they actually don't have that so this is a it's a far more insightful approach i think to way the way we need to look at the future
0: mm. and how do you see economic disruptors affecting city development and existing urban areas i mean you've spoken a little bit about um the uh, driverless cars and those sorts of things coming into play, how do you think they're going to affect the future development of cities?
1: Well, I I look at the the process in two stages. The first one is the disruptive phase, Mm. for example, the Uber uh, impact. And, you know, I I look at that as a substitution effect. In other words, essentially, Uber substitutes for a taxi. So it doesn't change the geography of a city. But the transformational impacts, and so automated vehicles, as you're alluding to, that, that will be transformational, mm. as will the internet of things. It will be, trans- so in other words, the geography of cities will change. Yeah. Now, the internet of things has started to have an interesting impact on, on job location, dispersing job location quite dramatically. Um, but but automated vehicles will probably be the biggest dir- disruptor of the economic geography of cities since electrification, mm. and you know y- y- we're close. I mean mm. the big impacts will start around twenty twenty
0: five. And what will that do to the the car parks in our cities? Um, how well, do you, how do you see that sort of playing out?
1: Well, I've just done some forecasting for the Australian Driver Driverless Vehicles Initiative to look mm-hmm. at that, and it seems as though there'll be two. Two sets of in, two stages of impact. The first one will be, uh, to the extent that av- automated vehicles are, um, are popular, and I mm-hmm. think they will be, more cars will be on the road. So the first impacts will be negative, but the second sets of impacts. So in other words, when full automation starts to kick in, and that won't be till, till probably twenty thirty five to twenty forty five, then you can see a situation where shared vehicles and shared autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. could dramatically. Uh, reduce car parking and congestion. Just to quote one interesting piece of research from the United States, a very good piece, that um, in the future, every single shared autonomous vehicle could replace 11 vehicles on the road.
2: Mm, Wow,
0: Okay.
2: So, Harry, this is some of the benefits of the collaborative economy, which we really haven't seen that type of uh, use of
1: very attention to resource uh, efficiencies. We haven't seen the we haven't seen collaboration. We haven't seen sharing um, from a, an economic geo- and geographic point of view. Um, we're starting to look at things, for example, the impacts of eBay on retail, but that's mm-hmm. still around the edges. It's not actually changing the distribution of shopping centres. Um, but 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 in terms of collaboration, as we move into the future, um, because of globalisation. Small businesses and small business startups will need to collaborate with each other more to be able to get a leg up. Now, we don't, we don't have city structures that not just permit it but actually generate it. So the net sets of thinking are not about how do you distribute shopping centres in a, in a network, it's all about how do you create new collaborative networks so that uh, the populace and individual and in civil life can actually cooperate to, to compete globally
2: planning it 's going to make it 's going to have challenges for planning isn 't it because the post war model was relatively easy to administer
1: do you think yeah absolutely we learnt we learned that model because it was pretty simply based on english practice but this but the model it's a, a, sorry the not the model but the parameters that are emerging um, are so different that the gardens it doesn 't fit a garden cities model and it doesn 't fit a a regulated model which in essence uh, as individual land uses. So you get a residential zone and you do residential in it. Um, it doesn't fit that anymore. But interestingly, we're still building those things on, the, on urban fringes. And that's because we haven't been able to synthesise what the next steps might start to look like.
2: And d- Does the garden
1: suburb movement
2: cast a shadow that is stopping or restricting contemporary responses
1: to new issues? Uh, it, it does. It's, uh, it creates a distraction and it creates... It, it, it misinforms, uh, I think, planners and people in the industry about what the objectives of planning should actually be. Mm. See, interestingly, in the late '90s, I, had a, I actually had a major argument was with the Planning Institute about though it was in, it, it was about um, reinterpreting and rethinking about how the Planning Institute might work uh, environmentally, and um, I made the comment that. I thought the most important objective in Australia should be access to, to shelter at the right price. Mm. And I've always thought the same thing. And I think, you know, maybe, Peter, you know, coming from the northern suburbs with migrant parents is pretty handy when your mates haven't got anywhere they can live. And I still think the same. And amazingly, it's still not the first objective of planning. Whereas in Australia, planning came out of the slum, slum abolition movement, but we don't care about that anymore.
0: Mm. Do you think we have a bit of a one size fits all mentality in terms of our regulation and our policy?
1: Oh, I think we definitely. I think we definitely have a one size fits all. It's, um, and I, I, I'm not sure why we've done it that way. Mm. Um, Historically, of course, each municipality had its own planning scheme and they were quite different. Mm. And, of course, then the thinking became, oh, why don't we standardise that with the VPPs? And, again, I historically had a a huge argument with the Department of Planning at the time. I went to see the Director-General and I made the point, um, the only thing that'll happen out of this is that you'll have a lot more regulation. Mm. And and so, anyway, I was was then asked to front a committee to explain why this would be the case. And I went through, and I, I won't name the people that were at that meeting, and I carefully went through. The only thing that can happen out of this is that you'll get more layers of control because the state will try to standardise. And when the state tries to standardise, there will standardize, be a state layer that goes on top of a local layer. Now look at what we've got. Mm. It's a blancmange. Mm.
2: Harry, you mentioned before that Australian cities are becoming more inequitable and this trend is likely to continue. Do you think that it will continue on? And what can we do to try to reverse that trend
1: well it, it will continue because um when, when you look at the future of employment which is really the, the main wealth generator um it, it's, it's all in the services industries there's, there's two component parts there's the population driven services so if you work in a, a shop or a supermarket you get your 15 bucks an hour or you've got your tradable services your internationally tradable services so you've got your lawyers and your finance your financiers your bankers uh, and, and and they work on global um, wage rates and deal and deal making wage rates. Now the issue that we've got is that um, the the tradable services groups understand human capital. They understand education, and they have been driving. And I've got some fantastic data. They've been driving a middle and inner ring land and housing prices for the last twenty years. When you look at the recent changes to, univer- to university enrollments, what you begin to see is has been a massive increase. Mm-hmm. So th- those people will be the same people that want to live in the inner and middle rings. And what we're getting on the, on the, uh, outer, on the fringe and outer fringes are uh, the working poor. In regional Victoria and regional Australia, we're getting poverty. And as I, it, in the forecasting future, it is very difficult to see why that trend would change.
2: These are global economic forces at work.
1: Absol- that, that, absolutely.
2: So, uh, from a spatial point of view, what can you uh, try to remedy some of that? You can't fix it, but maybe you can help to
1: soothe it. it? Well, you well, we can fix it. I, the, we um, moved in Australia to uh, a, a social housing model which, uh, which moved away from the uh, direct provision of public housing to the indirect provision of housing through rental subsidy. Now, one of the problems with that was that we were creating high-cost residential cities and one of the problems with that was that rents or rentals have, got, have been squeezed for a long time and, they, and in the short run there's a bit of a correction with apartments so that will go away a little bit. But what you're going to find is that um, unless we begin to shift back to much more direct provision of social housing and we move towards new models of Land alienation on the urban fringe, uh, and work through how it is that um, when lands rezone on urban fringes, for example, that, that a price needs to be set, so that over time there's a, a good return for everybody, but we begin to understand that, that in the future, as wage rates begin to become global, we've got to have housing prices that are global to allow people to have a good life.
0: What about the other states in terms of how they um, distribute social housing? I mean, is there something that Victoria can learn from the other states?
1: Not really. really? Um, We've done, look. We, I've done reviews of public housing in other states and, mm. you know, some are better than others. The ACT is actually pretty good at what they do and they've got some quite innovative ideas. Mm. Um, but, you know, um, the, some of the schemes which Treasuries hate but have worked really well, um, are shared equity schemes. So in West mm-hmm. Australia they've got the shared equity scheme. That would be relatively simple to implement in Victoria, but relatively expensive. But I would support it uh, on purely on the grounds of, of equity. One of the things, though, is y- you do need to reduce the price of, of housing, but you want to make sure the cost actually decreases too. Mm-hmm. So one of my rationales is we need land costs because our building industry is very efficient. Our home building industry, there's no issues with that. What we need to be able to do is to provide land at rates that can be uh, sustained and there are other schemes that I've written about which are relatively simple which would allow for example people to uh, be given, uh, instead of a first home buyer grant, be given a block of land for seven or eight years for free while they pay off the first part of the mortgage on the house and then they need to pay for the land. There are many ways to cut the cake cake here but um, sadly they're not a priority. Well, I'm glad we're talking, uh,
2: Harry, about solutions in this part of the interview. Uh, can you talk to the idea of experimental suburbs?
1: Um, yes. The The idea is that we need to move away from suburbs where uh, we simply put a dot in the middle of a 400-metre catchment and we drop a shopping centre and that's the, that's the centre of community life. Mm. We need to begin to synthesise suburbs of, of the future which are based on sharing and collaboration so that... The, the meeting point is not a shopping centre there 's nothing wrong with shopping centers, but they don't need they 're not the center of community life that 's a mistake I think. These new suburbs and the new centres would would accommodate um, warehousing or urban warehousing because delivery and home delivery and local delivery will be incredibly important. Uh, they need to be connected it would be quite simple to connect uh, retail, education health with collaborative workspaces. Um, in, a, in a very, very different way. Yeah. So what we're doing at the moment, Peter, is, is extremely one-dimensional and it's, it's time for some experiments.
0: What are your thoughts on having a, labo- a laboratory where all of these different types of approaches are applied and tested before coming out in, in real-life results?
1: Oh, I think that... I think... Um, you kind, of,
0: kind of a real-life SimCity... Yeah, look,
1: I I think that'd be a great start, particularly. Mm. See, one of the things that that um, I'm researching and working through at the moment um, are the thoughts, ideas, and objectives of millennials. Mm. And one of the problems in the way we plan for cities is, you know, old farts like you and myself, <laughs> you know, where we think that people are like us. Well, mm. they're not. You know, we only have to look at Pokemon Go at the moment, and the, and the initial it's no, in- all over
0: that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the initial introduction of uh, of uh, uh, from you know virtual reality into mixed reality, mm. so um, that would be a, f- a great idea, I think, to mm. do that, and and I think it would be fun. And I th- it, it, the, and to the extent we can reintroduce some fun, some uh, loose tight properties back into the game, I think we'd all be much mm. better off. It is. It can be a very exciting time. That's what we That's what we're talking about. Yes, well, I don't want to borrow that from Malcolm Turnbull, but um, <laughs> but, no, but what I'm thinking is in terms of city building, this is actually an exciting time. We just haven't picked it up yet and, and the hurdle to picking it up is much bigger than it was in the 1970s and 80s because we've built very tight institutional frameworks which are very hard to change um, and, and we need change at the, at the institutional level. So, starting anywhere in this is a good idea, mm. and starting with millennials uh, driving a future city structure which is good for millennials is probably the best place to start with this.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, planning stability and policy could represent success, or it might mean planners are complacent and hidden pressures are building. Do you think that's where we are?
1: Uh, well, we're, we're certainly at the complacent level. The, the the success is really interesting. I mean, Melbourne is the world's most livable city on the Economist Intelligence Unit criteria because it has been stable and it's stuck to the, the the Garden City plan and it's done it extraordinarily well. I mean, we are, really are that good. Um, my my sort of uh, challenge is that is, is to understand or set the the objectives. If 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 I was going to measure Melbourne to be the world's most livable city in 2050, what would the new indicators be? That's what we should be thinking about now. So, this complacency is oh, yeah, we're number one, we're number two, we're number mm-hmm. one, we're number two. No, no, no. Let's think about the 2050 challenge.
0: Now, just a quick thank you to our sponsor, Songbowden Planning. Songbowden are your go to planners for permit applications, planning scheme amendments, and representation at VCAT planning panels. Visit their website at www.songbowden.com.au. This is Harry. How do radical ideas
2: succeed? Probably through shows like this, Peter,
1: um, <laughs> <laughs> it, because they've got a, it
2: actually has to start somewhere. And yeah. your book, accru- and and your latest book,
1: destructive cities, things like that help. Well, I think the destructive cities bounces the ball in Australia that the king is actually naked here. That that we have been very good at what we do. That we're doing good catch up at the moment. Is that the emperor has no clothes? That's old fairy tale. That's, fair that's fair exactly fair. right. That um, that is exactly right, and that we now need to reset the clock the future, um, and, and the point of the book was to, was to say that failure, failure to understand the, the new challenges uh, will mean that the, our cities will begin to destroy the success that they've had. And
2: uh, Harry, just finishing up, uh, where, how do you refresh, relax,
1: where do you go to the well,
2: what do you seek at the well to refresh?
1: Well, I'm a, I, I think you'd call me in Australia a file. Like, I've got a place on the Great Ocean Road and um, I wrote most of Destructive down there. Um, surfing, riding bikes, up the back, down the front, running. And I tell you what, I still love my can of VB, Peter. And, and uh, how do people <laughs> access Destructive Cities? Um, they can come to the uh, macroplan.com.au website. That'd be fantastic. I'd love some... I'd love the conversation to be continued. I've had some wonderful people already read component parts of the book and and, and make criticisms um, because I intend uh, to, to continue to, to prosecute the idea that we need deep, insightful institutional change.
2: Harry, thank you very much for this uh, informative interview and I hope our readers will um, pick up a copy of Destructive Cities. Uh, Thanks again for your time. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Brian, or as I've called you throughout, Harry, which is your nickname. Good luck.
0: Thanks,
1: Pete.